Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Todd, and I'm one of the pastor elders here. And if you're visiting for the first time, we want to thank you for worshiping for, with us. And thank you for our faithful flock for showing up each week to worship God, hear the word preached, and encouraging each other. And here at Trinity, we preach expositionally through the text. And if you, as you've heard many times, it's simply a way of going through the text passage by passage. This helps us keep focus on what the context was to the original hearers, as well as giving us insight into how to interpret it for believers today. So if you didn't grab a listening guide on your way in, those are located on the back, and if you'd like one, listening guide has the text that I'm preaching as well as the main points of the sermon and a, and a portion to take notes on it. And if you'd like one, go ahead and raise your hand, and my lovely wife Janelle will be glad to bring you one. One right here in the front. <laughs> So we've been working our way through Matthew, and today we, we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And as you've heard many times, this is the first of five discourses, and, and what we haven't said before, but we'll say now is that this is the longest passage of Jesus talking in the Bible. And throughout the last several weeks, we've talked about uh, how this sermon applies to the original hearers. And how Jesus comes in and he takes the, the text that people have heard throughout their lives and they've heard it said and he reinterprets it into this new ethic, this kingdom ethic. And he's describing this new ethic and explaining that his followers will be known by an internal righteousness, not an external one. An internal righteousness, one that flows from the inside out not by an external righteousness that results in seeking approval by man. So Jesus commands us to be different. And he has the authority to do it. And that's what this passage is all about. In fact, Jesus reveals that he has more authority than the prophets themselves. In fact, God has validated him as his son at his baptism. He claims the ultimate authority as the Son of God. And the Son of God commands us to be salt and light. As his followers, our purpose to be the saltiest of salt and the lightest of lights, pointing towards him as our Lord and Master. And this passage is an epilogue of sorts. It's a continuation from the previous two weeks, from two weeks ago where Jesus, Jesus, where DJ, DJ is not Jesus, although I've said that twice. <laughs> Where Jesus, DJ talked about the two kinds of trees. It was actually Jesus that talked about the two kinds of trees. DJ actually preached on it, but I'm going to stop saying his name. So Jesus talks about the two kinds of trees in Matthew 7. And he talks about a healthy tree that bears good fruit and a tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Dave, who is also not Jesus, preached last week on the people who did the will of the Father and not in the ones who said that they did the will. Not in the ones who said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And in verse 23, we saw how those that said they did, Jesus tells them, Depart from me, and he calls them workers of lawlessness. 
So Jesus contrasts these two standards, those who obey and those who do not, and then he describes these eternal consequences, these eternal consequences to them. The branches that don't bear fruit will be cut off and thrown into the fire. The people that don't know him will be turned away. This passage, just like those other two, has eternal significance. So let's take a look at today's passage. We'll pray and we'll unpack it together. Open your Bibles to Matthew 7, verse 24, and we'll get started there. Jesus is talking and he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these saying, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Lord, thank you for your word today. We pray that we would be diligent and faithful in how we study it. And we just pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to, to see and hear the truth that you would have for us today. And I pray that any, anything that is, is not true would just be stricken from the minds of those who hear it, Lord. pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here ends the Sermon on the Mount, and as we've walked through this sermon, it's important to consider how the teaching would have affected the original hearers. It's not just Jesus teaching them, but he's also reteaching the people what the law actually said. And remember that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. And we've talked a little bit over the, the weeks and months about what that looks like. But these people have heard this said for hundreds of years not just by rabbis, but by scribes who quote rabbis and scholars. And he calls into question the integrity of the spiritual leaders of the day, the Pharisees. He calls the Pharisees hypocrites. And here he tells them if they don't repent, they're going to have eternal problems, because you see he's talking to them too. But the big question is, if Jesus is the Messiah and if his words are true, then how then should they live? And that is still a very important question to us today. If Jesus is the Messiah and if his words are true, how should we live? Fortunately, Jesus tells us how to live, and it's not an easy thing. We've heard over the weeks and months about how difficult this kingdom ethic is. There's several times throughout the, the, throughout the Sermon on the Mount where I've heard this teaching and I've thought about what it would look like to do this all the time, every day, all of Jesus' teaching. And I've decided it's not easy. I've considered how difficult it is, whether or not it's even possible to follow Jesus' words all the time. And throughout the ages, I'm not the only one. Leo Tolstoy, the Russian author and playwright, believed that this sermon, when literally believed and obeyed, would result in a perfect utopia. 
one without wars, one without police, one without sin. Tolstoy believed that the Sermon on the Mount unlocked man's greatest problem, which is essentially a cycle of being wronged and avenging that wrong. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You might remember that we called that the lex talionis. But listen to what John Stodd has to say about Tolstoy. Tolstoy embodied in himself the tension between the ideal and the reality. For on the one hand, he was convinced that to obey the Sermon on the Mount was quite feasible. While on the other hand, his own mediocre performance told him that it was not. Stott goes on to say, For the standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by every man, nor totally attainable by any man. To put them beyond anybody's reach is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. To put them within everybody's grasp is to ignore the reality of man's sin. So my friends, it's, it's not perfectly attainable by any of us because of sin. The reality is, is that we're still in our sin. But we have the new birth. Jesus says you must be born again. He changes our hearts to give us new desires. The Holy Spirit empowers us to deny ourselves. He says you cannot produce good fruit unless and until unless and until he makes you a good tree. And we know this happens by faith alone. And we heard the passages from James about how that works together. So we're saved by faith alone. But we're not saved. Well, I'll quote Martin Luther here. Martin Luther says, by faith alone, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone justifies, but saving faith is a working faith. Obedience blooms out of a saving faith, and that produces good works. So faith in Jesus is what makes it possible to produce good fruit, which confirms that you are a good tree. This brings me to my first point. Wise builders hear and heed. If we look back at verse 24... We see everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus applies this to everyone. And we should note that these words of mine apply to the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not just talking about building houses or trimming trees. Jesus is talking about every word that has come before it in the Sermon on the Mount. Some commentators suggest that this passage is better understood by using all these things I've said or what I have said here. This is especially important in looking back over the last couple of weeks, but also over the last couple of months since we started into the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon is full of how to live and what the character looks like of Jesus' followers. He's summing up the sermon by telling us what is at stake. In this passage, we shouldn't be confused. It is about salvation. The last three passages have all been about salvation. When Jesus talks about the branches being cut down and thrown into the fire, he's talking about eternal condemnation. When Jesus talks about sending those away that don't know him, he's talking about eternal condemnation. And if you look at today's passage, there's a lot of comparisons in this passage 
In this passage, we have these two builders. Now, they both hear the words of Jesus, and they both build a house, and both of them have storms. But there's also the contrast. One builder is wise, and one is foolish. One chooses rock, while the other chooses sand. One is, one's house stands, and the other in the middle of the storm, comes crashing down. And it says, great is the fall. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. See, the wise man not only hears, but he heeds. He obeys. And if we look at what they're building, we can, where, I'm sorry, if we look at where they're building, we can assume that these two builders are in the same location. Or else the builder's wisdom would be based on location and not on any kind of wisdom at all. Both builders have access to the same material and the same tools, and both have the potential to build a house on the rock. This would have made a lot of sense to the audience in the, in the ancient world because the Sea of Galilee served as a natural setting for this parable. It has sand, but it also has rock. The sand ringing the lake is like rock because it gets hard in the hot summer months. But to build a house on the rock, the builder would have to dig down deep, sometimes as far as 10 feet below the surface of the sand, to find the bedrock. He does this knowing that this is the only way to erect a foundation on solid rock. And only then will he withstand the winter rains. And this isn't the gentle kind of rain that we sometimes experience. This is torrential rains the kind that lead to flash floods, losses of life, and houses come crashing down. If we look at the builders again, this wise builder who is a hearer and a doer, we see some language just like that in James 21. Go ahead and turn there with me. James 1, 1, verse 21 for a moment. Therefore, put away all filthiness. Give you a second to get there. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. And James goes on to say that the hearer looks into his natural face and walks away forgetting what he looks like. But the doer looks into the perfect law, perseveres, and commits to action. It says here, he is blessed. James says the hearer and doer is blessed, while the natural man is self-deceived. The natural man sees the truth, but walks away forgetting what he looks like. He could have a gaping wound in his forehead, and he would forget it was there. In this passage, James says that the doer is committed to action. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, will be blessed in his doing. And if you continue on, he gives three examples of actions that demonstrate religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Visits orphans and widows in their affliction and keeps oneself unstained from the world. 
This sounds familiar. This is the cost of discipleship that we would deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Christ. And our cross is keeping ourselves unstained from the world. Just a small thing. So if we go back to the builder, if we look in the parallel passage of Luke, it's found in chapter 6, verse 48. Here it says, He is like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock, and when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. The wise builder dug deep to build the house on the rock. So in order to build a house on the rock, you have to find the solid ground first. And that is work. Building a house is not easy. In this case, when we're talking about doing, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, Jesus isn't talking about, hears these words of mine and does some of them. He doesn't give us an out. He says, does them. The implication is that we're to do everything that he commands. The question is, what is our foundation? What is your foundation? What kind of foundation are you building on? What kind of truth are you building your house on? Are you digging deep to find the the bedrock? Is your house built on solid rock? Because if it is, that makes you a wise builder. So there's this thing called the Waffle House Index. I don't know. Anybody ever heard of the Waffle House Index? Great. <laughs> so this is a real thing. I'm not making it up. If you don't believe me while you're pretending to look up scripture on your phone, Google it. The bottom line is that if you, have, if you go to a Waffle House after a major storm and it's closed, then generally things are really, really bad. Now, you wouldn't think so because the food at Waffle House, I don't think is very good. So it doesn't bother me when they're closed. <laughs> but in this case... If there's a major storm, FEMA uses them as an example of how bad the damage is. The term was coined by FEMA Administrator Craig Fugate in 2001, I'm sorry, 2011, after the Joplin tornadoes. It's widely known that Waffle House never closes, and if they do, something serious is going on. For example, during the Joplin tornado in 2011, the two... (coughs) Excuse me, the two Waffle Houses in Joplin, Missouri, never closed. They both stayed open to serve waffles and sausage bowls. So there's three levels. There's green, yellow, and red. If they're on green, then they're serving a full menu, which means they have power and they've got supplies. So the damage to the area is limited or there's no damage at all. If the Waffle House index is yellow, then you're in a little bit of trouble. So they've got a limited menu. So they've got limited power or only power from a generator and food supplies are are low. If it goes to red, you're not going to get a waffle. If it goes to red, the restaurant's closed and there is severe damage to the area. Or there is severe flooding. So the point is, is that Waffle House has a reputation with FEMA for being durable. It's durable because it has a trustworthy reputation for withstanding and recovering from storms. 
It's hard to imagine that this doesn't come without some kind of preparation. Is it just coincidental that Waffle House may be the only restaurant open in some kind of disaster-ridden area with flooding or power outages? It's hard to believe that. Why would Waffle House be the only place open? And Waffle House isn't a disaster relief area. They aren't coming in after all the damage to start serving food. They're there every day. They're serving up waffles and sausage bowls every single day. Sometimes in the midst of hurricanes and tornadoes. So it could be self-serving. I mean, they could be just the only place open after that, which means they probably sell 10 times as many waffles as uh, anybody else. But I doubt if that's it. I think it's probably more like Waffle House knows there's a Waffle House Index. Waffle House is durable. And this is a terrible comparison, but this is how our house is when we build it on the rock. Our house is durable and withstands storms and recovers from storms. What about these foolish builders? Let's look in verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So John Calvin says, the general meaning of the passage is that true piety, excuse me, true piety is not fully distinguished from its counterfeit till it comes to the trial. For the temptations by which we are tried are like billows and storms, which easily overwhelm unsteady minds whose lightness is not perceived during the season of prosperity. Calvin's point is that true piety, hence true faith, is not revealed until there's a major storm. And this seems true, right? Our faith is tested like this also. When we are the most needing to hear from God is usually when we're in the darkest time in our lives. Times of crisis. And that's really what this passage is about. <coughs> Excuse me. But the foolish builders will be disappointed, friends. Their assurance of salvation is grounded solely in their profession, but not their practice. They hear, but they don't do. They have works to which they may appeal, but not the kind that Jesus is talking about when he talks about good fruit. Over the past two weeks, we've seen that there are trees, but there's good trees and there's not good trees. You wonder about the foolish builder. How did they come to be so deceived? Didn't they know that they were building on sand? And we should be worried because nobody wants to build a house that will fall. And I doubt if the builder set out to build a house on the sand. I mean, he heard the same thing as the wise builder. It says right in, right in Scripture that he heard the word of mine and then he did not do it. And we know he has the same material. We talked about that a minute ago. He's in the same location. But the difference, I suspect, is that he built the, sand, built the house on the sand because he thought it didn't matter. He's deceived himself 
into thinking either the sand is just as strong as the rock or he believes that the rock doesn't matter and you can build a house on something other than rock. And if you build a house on something other than rock, this will stand against the storms. Problem is, that's not what Jesus says. These are not the kind of storms we're talking about. He's talking about, again, eternal storms, eternal consequences. The wrath of God is what he's talking about. So in this case, building on rock is not just wise, it's practical. Practical. We want to have a house that stands. Like, for example, you've heard of Tuscany. Tuscany is the largest region in Italy, and it's the region where this town of Pisa is located. And at the end of the 12th century, somebody conquered somebody else, and they had all these spoils of war, and they said, you know what we should do? We should build this cathedral complex, and we'll call it the Field of Miracles. And, you know, kind of the trademark building in this Field of Miracles will be this bell tower. We'll build this very tall bell tower that everybody can see. So they decided to build this grand bell tower in the town of Pisa. It's now known as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And did you know that the Leaning Tower of Pisa was, was leaning by the time they got to the third story? So it's not like they built it and then it fell over. It, it was leaning already. So they could have stopped and started over, and at that point, but instead, because of the initial lean, they compensated and built the, one si- the sides on one side larger than the other side to compensate, which just led to a greater disparity in weight, which caused it to lean more. So this increased weight caused it to really destabilize, so they had to do a whole lot of things to make sure it didn't fall completely over. And as I said a minute ago, they knew by the third story that it was leaning. And the smartest thing to do, since they knew it wasn't built on solid ground, would have been to tear it down to the ground, find solid ground, and start over. But that's not what they did. I don't even know if you can ring a bell in a leaning tower. I mean, if you think about it, there's a bell leaning. That means the clapper's kind of leaning against one side. I don't know how it'd sound, but it probably wouldn't sound great. But they've spent a lot of time stabilizing this tower. And this is what the experts said in 2011 about the stability of the tower. Experts say the famous tower at Pisa will lean for at least another 200 years. It may even stay upright, well, almost upright forever. That's all thanks to a restoration project which brought the tower back from the brink of collapse a decade ago. So the Leaning Tower of Pisa, which is an engineering marvel, built to last for the next 200 years, has a 3.99 degree lean. After hundreds of years of restoration, millions of dollars, it's become an icon. It's basically become an icon to man's engineering. We're able to take a poorly engineered, poorly researched, poorly built tower and stabilize it. You can't hang a picture straight. You can't put your pen down on your desk, but it may never fall. It will stand leaning for another 200 years. And again, do you know the problem? It's a poor foundation. Did you know that Pisa comes from the Greek word for marshy land? (laughs) Right. 
That's like finding out the builders of the Corvette Museum in Bowling Green had a map with a massive sinkhole under it and built it anyway. So a leaning bell tower that is now stabilized but still leaning. And again, it's hard to imagine. It's not just pride, us like trying to engineer the thing to stay leaning forever. And just so you don't think I'm specifically beating up on Europeans today, We've got a good example right here in Okoe, Florida, which was built on a foundation of muck and peat. So their town hall is built, and the, the porch at the town hall has started to separate even just as soon as it got built. And they've decided that they might have to go through and make sure that the porch doesn't completely detach. And it's built on marshy land also. So if they fix it, it would cost $1 million to stabilize the building. It would involve driving supports 20 feet into the ground. This is the town hall of Okoe, which has 35,000 residents. So at a cost of $1 million, they're going to stabilize basically their town hall, which is built on marshy ground. So if your house has a poor foundation, it will lead to all kinds of problems and will cost you a lot of resources, and ultimately you will spend everything you have to save a house that is always and continuously failing. So if we look back at the passage, we should remember that this is the same place and the builder should anticipate the same storms. But again, the foolish builder thinks he's safe building on the sand. It's not that he's stupid or ignorant. He's heard the words. He just doesn't do them. He chooses a wide path. We look at verse 27. We see the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus uses parallelism to reinforce the sameness of the storms. Both verse 27 and verse, verse 25 say, if the rains fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but but Jesus here is comparing the two because those, those are the same storms. The difference is one built his house on solid ground and the house stands. The other one did not and his house falls. So this pattern is repeated three times followed by this climax. The, the storm hit upon that house. God's word uses storm imagery to, to indicate God's wrath and it's true that a firm foundation will sustain you in life's storms. But what we're talking about here is final judgment, eternity. Last week, Dave talked about Jesus is the judge. And he's the judge of eternity. Again, he's talking about hell. And D.A. Carson says, you may not believe that a hell exists. In that case, you may dismiss Jesus as a liar or a fool. Alternatively, you may be so attached to your sin that even the threat of final and catastrophic judgment may not induce you to leave it. But you will be foolish indeed if you simply accuse Jesus of frightening you into the kingdom. The real issue is the truth behind Jesus' words, the truth which prompts Jesus' warning, either there is a hell to be shunned or there is not. And this is how crucial this passage is to us. Not only did the house fall, but Matthew writes, great was the fall of it. Some translations say its collapse was great or it fell with a great crash, but the bottom line is this house was completely destroyed. 
So in order to take stock of whether or not we're just hearing or hearing and doing, there's a couple questions we can ask ourselves, and Sam Storms quotes these in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. But after the new birth, when this is especially relevant, he asks us, do we grieve more deeply over sin than we used to, or are we flippant and casual about our moral and spiritual failures? He also asks that we should, t- we should ask ourselves, has your prayer life changed at all? Is it more theocentric than it used to be? And how has the re- your relationship with the world changed after hearing that Jesus said about our being salt and light? D- Jesus doesn't just come to give the people relief from earthly troubles, even though he does that. He cures them from all kinds of things like paralysis, leprosy, and the problem of blood. But all these things testify to who he is. These miracles he's performed are to confirm his identity as Lord and Savior. What he's really do, doing here is pronouncing their spiritual diagnosis, diagnosis, which is really the one that matters. The one that matters is sin, and the cure is him. If we look at verse 28... All these things he secures in himself. Jesus Christ is the solid rock. It says about his authority in verse 28, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So the first thing we can notice is this is the conclusion of the sermon. It begins with these Greek words, kai agenito, which means, and it happened, and that's the same way the rest of the five discourses will be ending also. It marks the formal transition from discourse to narrative. The exact phrasing occurs five times. And it also says that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. This word astonished can mean a bunch of different things, but it gets watered down by our use of language and hyperbole in describing our feelings. But in this case, what we should notice is they're not astonished is kind of like cool or oh wow. They're astonished and amazed. They're dumbfounded. They're in wonder. But it's not the content of the sermon that amazes them. It's the man himself The authority of Jesus is what amazes them. He taught as a spokesperson from God, not as a teacher of his time, not as a Pharisee or a scribe who is reflecting what they've heard or read. He teaches as if he's God himself. He appeals to his own authority and is someone who comes to fulfill the law. He claims authority from God, which is why the people are amazed. It says in verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And again, the scribes claim no authority of their own. Their only authority came from constantly quoting everybody else. Their role was essentially to, to take their tradition of the interpretation and put it on paper so other people would be able to hear what other people thought. Jesus came and didn't quote anybody other than himself.
15, and later in Matthew, in, verse, in chapter 28, before the Great Commission, we, we see again Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there again, he's announcing that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and the Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So I just remind you that this is the Jesus that we're talking about, this man who comes from God. This is the Jesus that we can build a house on. Jesus is the solid rock. This God-man went to the cross, dying an agonizing death, suffering and enduring the Father's wrath while sinless, so that he could be raised again, and you might be too. Do not be like the foolish builder, content to hear the word, and build a house that will not stand, guaranteed to be utterly destroyed when the storms come. Build instead on the solid rock, be hearers and doers. Now I remember one of the first books I read when I first came to faith, it was John Piper's Do Hard Things. And in there he talks about this little placard that he had on the wall of his kitchen that he walked by every day. It was actually a quote by C.T. Studd who wrote this poem. But it's the sign read, many a day will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And this has stuck with me throughout the years. Only what's done for Christ will last. These are the good works from the good trees. They have eternal significance. Being hearers and doers will produce a strong house and we will also produce good fruit. Not only will we do the Father's will, but we'll also know Christ. And this poem goes on to say, when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Friends, Jesus promises that while your life may be burned out for him, it is surely not exhausted. If you build it in this way, with this in mind, your house will stand all of life's storms. You can be assured that it will even stand the wrath of God. It's a promise secured in the body and the blood of Christ himself. That is bedrock we can build our house on. Let's pray.